There may be no institution in America more consequential or divisive than the United States Supreme Court. Under the leadership of Chief Justice John Roberts, the court has upended campaign finance laws, undermined the 1965 Voting Rights Act, affirmed a previously unrecognized constitutional right to gun ownership, and this year, emboldened by its new 6-3 conservative majority, struck down the constitutional right to abortion, decisions that have had a profound impact on our politics, not to mention the daily lives of millions of Americans. But there is more coming up. This coming Monday, on Halloween, the Supreme Court will revisit another politically charged issue should affirmative action continue to play a role in college admissions. And coming soon, will Senator Lindsey Graham have to testify in a Fulton County investigation into Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election? We'll discuss with two long-term court watchers, Leah Littman, a law professor at the University of Michigan, and Jess Braven of the Wall Street Journal on this episode of Skullduggery. Aye. Do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a Senior Counsel at States United. So being the uh, wonky students of public policy that we are, thanks largely to our resident wonk, Victoria, we're going to do a deep dive on the Supreme Court on this episode, and there's a lot to talk about. But there's also a hell of a lot of news that I I just want to address here, and it hits home on a lot of themes we've discussed. As we talk, we've just learned a bit more about this horrific attack on the um, uh, husband of Speaker Nancy Pelosi by some deranged lunatic who was apparently, according to CNN, posting all sorts of wild conspiracy theories about COVID and January 6th on social media. And that comes the same day, we're going to connect the dots here, or I am, that Elon Musk is taking over Twitter and uh, vowing to, I mean, what was his first words? The bird has been freed, uh, vowing to restore Donald Trump to the platform and a whole lot of others who were taken off because of the uh, wild conspiracy-minded and evidence-free tweets (laughs) they were posting. And it seems there's, uh, you know, a potentially very dangerous connection there that we should all be thinking about. Yeah, it's a it's a sign of our times. You know, we don't want to be reductionist here and say that this is entirely about social media. But uh, social media certainly gives, you know, a a platform to uh, a lot of very dangerous ideas and rhetoric. And there have always been people who are susceptible to conspiracy theories and and dangerous ideas, but didn't always have the opportunity to really act on them or to be incited by them because there just wasn't as much of it around. And there is now. And these are incredibly scary times for people who are in uh, in public service. You know, the New York Times had a big story uh, not too long ago about the threats that uh, not just the top members uh, of, of Congress are getting, but, you know, backbenchers. Everybody in Congress gets threats these days. And a lot of them have had to hire private security guards to do their jobs. And to try to govern the country with those kinds of threats uh, of violence and, and intimidation is is not very good for our democracy and is certainly not going to encourage people to enter into public policy. So I, I don't know. This is, a, this is a, a, a pretty scary time, and I don't know how we get out of this cycle. Yeah. So not only do members of Congress get these sort of threats, but even your local elections clerk down the road gets these sort of threats now. And I read recently that something like a third of all of the election clerks in Wisconsin, I'm probably going to be a little bit off about this, have had to find money in their budget to install things like bulletproof glass in their offices and other sort of uh, security systems. 
That being said, there's nothing quite like being essentially the 24-7 subject of multi-million dollar ad buys that paint you as the devil incarnate, which is exactly what's happened to Nancy Pelosi over the course of the last few years, and more particularly, of course, as we get closer and closer to the election. Anyway, nothing like having millions of dollars spent by a major political party painting you as a devil to uh, unleash slightly crazy people with hammers to go try to attack you. All true, but I was trying to direct the discussion a bit to Elon Musk and Twitter, because I do think this is a moment uh, for our politics and our, you know, the state of our civic discussion. Uh, by the way, I should point out that uh, Donald Trump has, uh, as we speak, uh, released a statement, I think, on Truth Social, his own, you know, platform saying, I am very happy that Twitter is now in sane hands and will no longer be run by radical left lunatics and maniacs that truly hate our country. And he ends with one of the more uh, ironic lines, all in caps, I love truth, exclamation point. Is truth a stripper's name? I don't know. <laughs> I guess the question is, and, and maybe we'll know by the time this podcast is, is, uh, has been recorded, is has Donald Trump also issued a statement about Nancy Pelosi's husband almost being killed today? You know, he's more, more likely to praise Elon Musk than Nancy Pelosi in any way. But this is really going to test. I, we we have to do a whole uh, show on uh, on Twitter, and and let's plan on doing that next week. But I mean, it seems to me if Elon Musk is really going to take this platform in the direction that he has promised to do, that it's really going to test the limits of free speech, so to speak. Let's remember why Trump got kicked off in the first place before the 2020 election and all his election denial nonsense, which I think was the final straw, you know, he was tweeting all sorts of crazy stuff on Twitter. We did a, a conspiracy land series um, after he went on this you know, rant about Joe Scarborough having been responsible and being having committed murder of a former aide to him in his office 20 years earlier, something that was completely absurd for which there was no absolutely no evidence to support. And Trump was doing it on a daily basis for a week. He was accusing Joe Scarborough of being a murderer because he didn't like what Joe Scarborough was saying on Morning Joe. I was just going to say that on Elon Musk, just very quickly, he's bought, he owns this company pretty much outright. He's got some right. investors. Took it off the but New York Stock he, Exchange. But, but he's taken it private, which means that he is insulated from shareholder and basically public pressure. He can do whatever he wants with this new toy of his, and that's a scary proposition. Okay, so not to preview what will surely be a coming debate that we might have in a future podcast, but, you know, journalists and elite Washington insiders are the ones who are most obsessed with Twitter. Most of America is not on Twitter. And when you're trying to figure out accountability for what's gone wrong in our, in our you know, kind of disinformation and violent rhetoric world, it's equally as important to look at just the vast scope of ways that people are getting their information and literally the billions of dollars that are being spent to directly target people with vicious, violent rhetoric in advertising around election time. And as important as Twitter is, the ecosystem that we're operating in is much bigger than that. And kind of focusing in on Elon Musk as kind of charismatic and lunatic figure as he might be really, I think, misses the larger You're exactly problem. right. This is a much broader problem. And it's appealing in some ways to be able to put it all on uh, someone like Elon Musk. But it is political advertising. It is cable news. It is just the tenor of our rhetoric today um, across the board. And there are all of these other ways that people communicate these vile ideas on, you know, encrypted apps and obviously uh, Facebook, which we haven't talked about. My guess is this guy was on Facebook and probably not on Twitter. So it is a big, broad 
very difficult problem that can't be easily, you know, kind of pigeonholed into, you know, one particular area or or put, you know, put on one particular person. All true enough. And I don't disagree with anything you've said, but I would call to your attention a Washington Post story a couple of days ago about how the sort of disastrous course of that letter that the House Progressive Caucus had released calling for diplomacy in Ukraine and then promptly withdrew. And uh, the Post went through the, what was going on behind the scenes and what caused them to do it. And they talked about how members of Congress, particularly the Democratic members of Congress who wrote this letter and their aides were all freaking out because they're getting hammered on Twitter. Well, and that's they're my, all that's afraid of being hammered on Twitter. And so Twitter does affect our political dialogue far more than we would like it to, than it should. I think we're in agreement. I think I think we actually agree. I think that, you know, like I, I think that Twitter is, is obviously really important to the kind of media and the kind of inside the beltway, you know, uh, establishment, you know, kind of, and I think it's it's a part, an important part of the ecosystem. But I don't want to lose focus on the kind of the bigger, broader issues. Fair enough. All right, we um, we teased everybody with a, a a wonky talk about the Supreme Court, which we haven't even gotten to. So we've got two great guests to do that. So let's get to it. All right. We've now got with us our two Supreme Court experts, Leah Lippman, a professor of law at the University of Michigan, former Supreme Court law clerk to Anthony Kennedy, and Jess Braven, the Supreme Court reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Jess, welcome back to Skullduggery. Leah, welcome. Thanks for having me. It's a thrill. <laughs> as always. <laughs> All right. So as if the Supreme Court hadn't made enough news uh, this year, it's got more on its plate. And I want to start with one that the political world is obviously watching closely, and that is Lindsey Graham's appeal to the uh, Supreme Court to block his subpoena from Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis investigating the uh, uh, Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election. This raises all uh, what Graham is trying to do is raise the speech and debate clause issue to say that should block any him from having to answer any questions about this. Leah, give us a sense of how you think the uh, court's going to uh, approach this. I mean, frankly, it's a little bit difficult to make predictions about how this court is going to approach a lot of cases right now, just because traditionally when answering that question, I would look at what the text of the Constitution says, what the existing precedent on an issue is, as well as some pertinent historical materials. And here, all of those sources suggest, you know, attempting to cajole state and local officials to find non-existent votes and overturn the results of an election would not be considered legitimate legislative activities that are constitutionally protected under the speech and debate clause. Now, that being said, right, this court has, let's say, taken a somewhat creative approach to constitutional interpretation in some cases, as well as cases involving the interpretation of statutes. So am I confident that the court is going to reject Senator Graham's request to have the subpoena blocked. I think it's more likely than not that they would reject this request, but I'm not 100% confident that they are going to. Jess, can we get your perspective on this? But one question that I have, is it certain that the whole court will decide on this case? Or isn't it the case that in, it, sometimes when whichever justice oversees whichever circuit, that that justice actually would make the ruling his or herself? Well, they can, but if you're the uh, litigant and you don't like the ruling, you can go to each of the other eight justices until you get a ruling you want. So whenever there's a uh, an emergency application that involves a, a serious case or there, there are big issues or big players, uh, almost certainly the circuit justice will refer to the, the full court, even if we know uh, how that justice might rule uh, on his or her own. I mean, you know, Clarence Thomas always refers death penalty, last minute death penalty petitions to the full court, even though... Uh, he uniformly denies them or votes to deny them. He still knows that that's what uh, what needs to be done. Justice Thomas uh, is is very likely to refer the matter to the full court uh, for a decision. Well, he's already done that, right? He's what, just issued a temporary stay. He's pretty a temporary stay. Day. So then the next step would be uh, to refer it to the full court. 
Well, it says, it says, it says it stayed pending further order from me or from the court. And just you agree with Leah that the it's more likely than not, if I understood you, Leah, that the court would allow Graham's testimony to go forward? That seems to be the most likely outcome. The Graham's argument is fully based on the on the speech and debate clause idea that what he was doing was related to uh, investigating facts to help him in legislative activity, which uh, uh, would be related to his, his his role as a senator. The the brief from the district attorney says, firstly, it's disputed whether that's what he was really doing or not. So we shouldn't you shouldn't just simply take his word for it. And secondly, they note that. Every judge below, the district judge and unanimous uh, panel from the, the 11th Circuit, upheld the, the subpoena and modified the subpoena, incidentally. It, it, there are restrictions on it. It's not, uh, there's not uh, a license to go on a full fishing expedition. He doesn't have to answer questions that are legitimately related to his speech and debate activities as a senator, and he can raise objections to individual questions. So they argue that whatever interest he has or protections he has under that constitutional provision uh, are already uh, accounted for by the lower court orders. And, you know, one of the things, uh, you know, I'm sure, you know, Leah can, can elaborate better than me, but the, the court is supposed to look at the balance of harms and who will suffer the greatest injury depending on what the court does if the ultimate outcome is to the contrary. So if the court blocks the testimony temporarily and later rules for the district attorney, it may be too late to ever get the testimony because the special grand jury's term may expire, the investigation may be over by the time all that litigation concludes. Alternatively, if he testifies now and he ultimately wins you know, way down the road, uh, they can exclude use of that testimony. So whatever injury he, he had can be ameliorated perhaps more more easily. So that's one of the factors I think the court will look at. But uh, Leah, maybe you have a, a better sense of, of how they would approach it. No, I, I think I agree with you, although I guess my interpretation of the court's actions on what's known as the shadow docket, that is the series of emergency applications, requests for stays that the court decides, they primarily focus on the likelihood of success on the merits, that is, whether they think an individual is likely to win or not. And that seems, I think, to be the most predictive determinant about whether or not they grant a stay. So I'm not entirely sure that they would focus a lot on, again, the likelihood of injury to Georgia if it can't go forward with this grand jury subpoena versus you know, the likelihood of injury to Senator Graham if he's able to subsequently exclude some of the testimony. I think their primary focus is going to be whether they think he is correct that enforcing this subpoena in all circumstances for all questions is going to infringe on you know the speech and debate protections that are afforded to legislators. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, that's right. Look, there, there's no dispute that this is a very, very conservative court, but it's not really what you would say a Trump court in the sense that no. it has not been particularly solicitous to Donald Trump's political interests or those of his allies specifically, as opposed to a, a broader, more conservative outlook on the law and, and policy. So I don't think the fact that you have, you know, three justices appointed by by Trump uh, and all of whom were, were voted for by by Graham, you know, will be a major issue for for this court because they see, you know, in, in the way they view their work, you know, being seen as simply helping Donald Trump does not seem to be an attractive, uh, an attractive image. I think what I was saying is they would just focus on whether they think Graham has a winning argument on the merits, that is, whether they believe that his testimony is, in fact, right, protected by the speech and debate clause. And this is not exactly a court that is particularly solicitous to legislative assertions of power or, or immunity, as the case may be. I just want to get into the timing on this. This has come up to the Supreme Court on this shadow docket, as you say, on an emergency basis. This is essentially Lindsey Graham's last portion call. This is his last opportunity to stop this. And if the Supreme Court doesn't grant a stay, he's in front of a grand jury before Christmas. Is that right? I would never say that Lindsey Graham couldn't come up with some creative possibility. I mean, he, he has a lot of tricks up his sleeve, but uh, it seems that, yeah, this would be the, the last stop unless there's some other issue. Now, if he goes to the grand jury and then refuses to answer any questions and asserts that every question infringes on his speech and debate you know, privilege, uh, you know, then that creates another another possibility. So, you know, we don't we don't know. 
Yeah, I, I was just going to say that, you know, the the uh, appellate court has already opened the door for all sorts of ways for Graham to frustrate what Fonnie Willis, the DA, is trying to get from him because Graham will say, well, that covers my legislative function as I think he was chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee at the time. Um, I needed to get the facts about what happened in the 2020 election, and therefore it was legislative fact-finding. And who, you know, and then there could be appeal question by question. It seems to me that given the ground rules that have already been established, uh, this may not be all that fruitful a grand jury appearance, even if the Supreme Court orders him Shouldn't the judge rule that like his conversations with the Trump campaign don't yes. constitute legislative fact-finding, period? Yes, but his he calls Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State, and proceeds to ask a whole bunch of questions designed to find out if there's some way Raffensperger can change <laughs> the election. If there's some way to overturn results. the election. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But 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 Graham could cast almost anything that says that is said in that conversation as some sort of, you know, legislative fact-finding. Yeah, although one possibility, though, is that if he, you know, if he defies questions, you know, that that he's ordered to answer and he asserts this, uh, you know, he, at a certain point, he's either going to have to answer, assuming he loses the, you know, the, the ultimate uh, uh, you know, judicial ruling on them, he's going to have to answer or be in contempt. And so then he faces a certain kind, you know, some some penalties. And I, don't, I know he's he can probably stall this out in, in, in some way. And, and maybe, his, you know, we don't know how, how essential his, his his testimony is. but. I was going to say a lot is going to depend on how granular the Supreme Court gets in how it rules on this. And does it sort of set what the limits are of speech and debate clause? And if it does, that's a pretty big ruling that could have impact well beyond this case. I mean, for years, the FBI has wanted to investigate various members of Congress and gets restricted by speech and debate clause claims. And, um, you know, obviously they, they have not been worked out in any uh, clear, there, there are no clear guidelines on that. So if the court goes in that direction, this could be a very big ruling. Let me jump in and ask Leah and Jess a follow-up question on that, because as you've pointed out, this is on the shadow docket. What is the likelihood of a, you know, kind of a full-blown Supreme Court consideration of this issue versus just a, you know, two-sentence order that says the 11th Circuit's decision stands or whatever? I think the most likely outcome is a largely unreasoned order in either direction. That is, they either reject the stay and just note in a single line that it is rejected. It's possible you might get some justices writing separately, either to explain why they would have granted the stay despite you know a majority of the court saying otherwise. But even if the court grants Senator Graham's stay, I think the most likely form that that takes is also a few sentences that are largely unexplained. You know, they might state the conclusion that they conclude that there's a significant risk that effectuating or enforcing the subpoena would intrude on the privilege, you know, protected by the speech and debate clause. But I think that's probably all you would get. Um, and I don't think we're going to get a ruling that is going to explain the contours of the speech and debate clause either way. One last question on this issue, because we do want to get to affirmative action, which is a biggie coming up. But uh, there was a lot of attention on the fact that it was uh, Justice Thomas who granted the stay on this. And of course, a lot of people saying, well, shouldn't he have recused himself because of the role of his wife, Ginny Thomas, being active in the efforts to overturn the 2020 election? I can see ways to look at this from different uh, perspectives. One is, you know, the usual, I mean, there is no standard for uh, recusal for Supreme Court justices. Basically, they decide for themselves. And it's interesting. The standard is if his impartiality uh, could be reasonably questioned. Right. And that is in the eye of the beholder. It is interesting, just when we get to affirmative action, that um, Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson uh, has already recused herself from the Harvard case that will be argued before the court on uh, uh, next week because she was on the board of overseers of Harvard University. And I think she had pledged from the get go she was going to recuse herself. In this case, you know, where. I don't know. Uh, Lee, I'd be very interested in your perspective on whether that this was a matter that uh, Thomas should have recused himself, his wife, although she was, you know, 
active in trying to overturn the election all over. She wasn't a particular party to this particular case. Yeah, it's a little bit difficult to know. I mean, Ginny Thomas was involved in trying to overturn the results of the election in several states that we know of, you know, Arizona, Wisconsin. We are not yet aware that she was specifically involved in Georgia. Now, that being said, even without evidence of her specific involvement, as to the legislators in a particular state, you know, we know she was sending messages to legislators in several states. We know she was in communication with the Trump White House chief of staff about these efforts. And I think given that, right, there probably are questions about whether there's a public perception that, you know, she had some interest in how this case was going to be resolved that I think, again, might raise questions just about the reasonable appearance of propriety or bias. So I think probably safer to have recused. Um, Is this, let's say, as bad as participating in the case about whether the National Archives should have released documents in response to the January 6th committee? I think not as bad, but I still think the better course would have been to recuse. Jess, you want to weigh in on that? You know, uh, the Board of Overseers at, at Harvard is likely involved in making litigation decisions in a case where they are the defendant. So Justice Jackson's role, you know, and the appearance of her of her impartiality is uh, is much more directly implicated in that case than in this situation where there is a big public controversy. Ginny Thomas, we all know where she stands. It's further removed than the conflict that's that's pretty obvious with, with Justice Jackson and, and the Harvard case. And yet, though, we know we're, you know, we have a pretty good guess of where she stands on affirmative action, and she's going to be a full participant in the University of North Carolina case, uh, which is going to be argued immediately before the Harvard case. So, you know, she's going to be involved in the issue, the underlying issue itself. Here with, with Thomas, this is, a, you know, an administrative stay that, that he issued. It's not a, a, a ruling on the merits. You know, as you say, there are there are arguments on both sides. I don't see it as an obvious demand for recusal, as if he were, uh, you know, personally involved in the litigation strategy or at least in approving the litigation position of uh, of one of the parties. All right. Well, let's get to the big affirmative action cases uh, coming up. This has been an issue that has been <laughs> confounding the court for decades now, going back to when Baki. Uh, in the late 70s, and the previous rulings by the court have not resolved it. (laughs) Are we going to get any closer with these two cases coming up, uh, University of uh, North Carolina and Harvard University? Well, I would say the previous cases did resolve it. They came up with a framework that that all the universities have, uh, at least the selective ones, where they have to make some decisions about who gets in and who does not, uh, have pretty much adopted in 1978. Uh, a single justice uh, opinion became the rule. No rigid quotas, but some kind of vague use of race as a plus factor for the compelling interest of educational diversity was okay. And that is pretty much what selective colleges uh, up and down the line have done ever since. That was reaffirmed in 2003 with a pair of cases from the University of Michigan, uh, which rejected a 50-point bonus for minority applicants, but said another plus factor program was okay. Reaffirmed again in 2013 and 2016 with a pair of cases from the University of Texas. So what has changed, uh, it's not the practices of these universities, it's the membership of the court. And this membership of the court obviously wants to take another look at this case because the issue is basically the same uh, as the court has considered in all these prior cases. So, Leo, why don't you set the stage for this case? I think oral arguments uh, are about to happen on Monday. Who, who are the litigants and uh, what are the, the basic arguments on both sides? Sure. So it's actually a pair of cases, one involving the University of North Carolina and one involving Harvard. And because UNC is a public university, the issue in that case is whether the federal constitution, specifically the 14th Amendment, um, prohibits universities from considering race when they are attempting to build a diverse student body. The issue in the Harvard case is whether a college's use of race, again, in attempting to build a diverse student body, violates Title VI of the Civil Rights 
Rights Act. Um, that is a provision of federal law that prohibits entities that accept federal funding from discriminating on the basis of race. There's also an allegation in the Harvard case that Harvard's admissions practices discriminate against Asian Americans in particular. And that is, again, a unique claim at issue in the Harvard litigation. The lower courts in both cases ruled that the university's admission policies were perfectly constitutional and consistent with the relevant statutes, and that Harvard's admissions policies did not discriminate against Asian Americans. And the argument that the universities are making basically runs as follows. You know, neither the Civil Rights Act nor the Equal Protection Clause requires public universities to be colorblind, that is, to make no no account of race whatsoever. They allow universities to consider race in order to facilitate integration, in order to remedy past discrimination, and here, you know, specifically to build a diverse student body, which they say has educational benefits for you know, students um, and in their later professional lives. And the opposing side argues that all uses of race, all consideration, of race is prohibited discrimination on the basis of race. So they're equating, you know, these race conscious affirmative action policies or race conscious remedies with, you know, Jim Crow era segregation. And there's kind of a famous line from a passage in Chief Justice Roberts' opinion in Parents Involved, which kind of captures this idea where he says the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. There he is, again, equating, you know, a school district's efforts to consider race in order to put together racially diverse schools with previous efforts to discriminate on the basis of race in public education, in particular segregated public schools. So it's probably worth being a little bit more detailed or specific about how Harvard and UNC use or consider race in their admissions. Do they, for example, apply minimum quotas? Do they specifically create programs where less qualified people are admitted because of race? Is that is that what's at issue in these cases? No. I mean, the universities are doing kind of what's just described earlier as a holistic review process. That is, they do not have quotas or a certain number of spots that are set aside for, you know, individuals of particular races, nor do they say they are letting in applicants who are less qualified or somehow below, you know, the minimum standard of qualifications that they are seeking. Rather, they get a large number of applications. And the question is, can you consider race when you are deciding, you know, from among a very large pool of qualified applicants, can you consider an individual's race as part of, you know, considering other aspects of, you know, their application, like socioeconomic diversity, geographic diversity, a diversity of interests, a diversity of aspirations? Is race one of the factors you can consider when trying to assemble a diverse student body? And so that's what they say they are doing. Again, a holistic review process that considers every aspect of an individual's application, but one of those aspects is race. So one of the one of the really interesting things is, is as as just previously mentioned, one of the uh, big cases before this one regarding this issue was in Michigan and came out of Michigan. And Leah, I think, as, as you mentioned in, in a conversation that we had slightly before we started taping this podcast, after that decision came out, uh, Michigan passed a state constitutional amendment barring the consideration of race as any sort of a plus factor in its admissions. How has that impacted what's happened in Michigan and the way its institutions have been run. I, I'm asking that mostly because it's it's possibly a, uh, a sign of where the rest of the country will be going if the Supreme Court rules the way the, the plaintiffs want or the petitioners want in this, these cases. Yeah. Um, so there's actually a brief that has been filed by the University of Michigan in these cases that outlines the effects of the state constitutional restriction on affirmative action on the composition of student bodies within the University of Michigan. And in a word, the effect has been pretty devastating, at least in the undergraduate institution. So the enrollment in the University of Michigan, you know, among black students, among native students, you know, in the undergraduate institution has plummeted after the state outlawed, you know, affirmative action and race conscious remedies in education. There has not been, you know, the same or a similar effect in institutions of higher education. And that's partially because institutions of higher education receive many fewer um, applications. And so they can actually go through each application and do an individualized holistic ses assessment of each individual. Whereas, you know, an undergraduate school that's, you know, 
of a size like the University of Michigan or one of these other big public universities, they don't have a team of people to go through, you know, the hundreds of thousands, you know, or tens of thousands applications that they receive. And so without some ability to consider different proxies for building a diverse student body, the result has been, you know, substantial reductions in the diversity of the undergraduate population. Let me just follow up with Jess. Is this a is this case kind of a zero sum game? I mean, is it possible that the challengers could prevail without over without the court overturning these big precedents, Gruder uh, in particular? Well, anything is possible, but is that likely? I mean, this court showed us earlier this year when it overruled Roe versus Wade that it is quite willing to correct the errors that uh, predecessor courts made, uh, and this is one and this is an area of race-conscious policy that has been a, a real division uh, on the court, even from, from even from Baki in 1978. I mean, Roe v. Wade in 1973, that was a seven to two decision. That, that, and, and you had you know, a, a spectrum of justices in the majority uh, voting for that. The race cases, the affirmative action cases have all been much more closely divided. Baki was a 4-1-4 case where there were four justices who said, it is a colorblind requirement. You can't use race at all. There were four justices on the left who said using having an actual quota, which is what the University of California Davis Medical School had. They had 16 seats in their class set aside for uh, underrepresented minorities. An actual quota is OK to remedy past historical discrimination. And you had one justice saying trying to you know, split, split the difference with you can use this uh, sort of ambiguous use of race, uh, uh, an undefined plus factor. Then the Michigan cases, again, were very closely divided. And the majority opinion in the Grutter case, which upheld Bakke, was a bit uh, ambivalent. Justice O'Connor, who wrote that opinion, approved the use of it, but said, you know, it's been 25 years since Bakke. In another 25 years, we expect it won't be necessary to use race. She said, you know, minority applicants have, have improved their credentials are now better than there were back in, in the 70s or, or 60s. And maybe they, you know, we expect they won't be in 25 years. So even the majority there was ambivalent about this practice. And so the, the cases brought more recently by Ed, Edward Blum, the same guy who's behind the, the two cases we're hearing at the Supreme Court now at the University of Texas, he expected the court had shifted enough to the right to overrule those. He fell short because Justice Kennedy turned out to be unready to do that. But now he's gone. Justice Kennedy is gone. And I think that, you know, the, this court, you know, they've made it very clear, the, the, the conservatives, that they don't, uh, they're not comfortable with this practice. They think that it's, it moves in the wrong direction and it's not provided by the, you know, by the, by the Constitution. So I think it'll be very difficult to uh, expect. Uh, I don't think they want to. I mean, you know, if, if you if you can overrule Roe v. Wade and move on, uh, this is, you know, relatively small potatoes to them. And there's another difference too, Dan, which is this, as, as was indicated by, you know, that Michigan uh, voter initiative that ended affirmative action in the state after they won the affirmative action case, at least partially. California in 2020, sort of the heartland of blue America, you might say, they defeated a legislative uh, voter measure to reinstate affirmative action. California ended it in 19, uh, I guess, 98, the uh, Proposition uh, 109. And then the legislature thought maybe the state is ready to restore it. No, they weren't in 2020, you know, the, the same year the, the, they voted overwhelmingly for Biden and the Democratic slate. Poll numbers show that majorities of basically every identifiable group, Republicans and Democrats, Blacks, Hispanics, whites, Asian Americans, majorities of all of them, although to different numbers, don't agree with using racial preferences in college admissions. And yesterday there was a roundtable with reporters held by Lee Bollinger, the defendant in the Michigan case, is now the president of Columbia University. And I asked him, why, why is there a, such a division between the public and the leadership of, the, of education in America regarding this practice? And he basically said, I don't know. <laughs> know why. I mean, maybe the question is not being asked the right way, but, you know, we think it's it's very important and and uh, the public doesn't seem to see it the same way. So uh, I think this case is a lot easier to envision in some ways than overruling uh, the precedents than Roe was. So, Jess, you mentioned something really interesting in your what you just said, and that is the name Edward Blum. 
who is the uh, the person behind these cases and who is the person behind a few other pretty significant cases that the Supreme Court has heard over the course of the last 20 years. Tell us more about him and why we should uh, we should all know his name. Well, Edward Blum, I mean, if you know, uh, a, a sloppy way to put it would be to say he's kind of like, you know, the uh, anti the, the mirror universe's Thurgood Marshall. I mean, he's out there litigating at the Supreme Court to end a lot of legislation and court decisions that have benefited disadvantaged uh, minorities. Edward Blum is he was a, he's a former investor who, who made some money uh, and has really devoted uh, the last part of his career to orchestrating and financing uh, litigation to end things like, oh, you know, Section 6 of the Voting Rights Act and uh, Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act and, and now uh, affirmative action programs at universities. He just believes in complete colorblind administration of the government and public resources. And he has spent his money and raised money from conservative, uh, wealthy conservative backers to, to do this. And he's very upfront about it. He's not like a shadow, mysterious group like many uh, pressure groups are. He's quite upfront about it. He's there. He's willing to talk to reporters. He's quite, you know, accessible. He's not, he's makes, he makes no effort to conceal what he is or what he's trying to do or, or why he's trying to do it or, or pretend that there's some other agenda other than what he's up to. He just wants to get rid of anything that seems to benefit one racial group over another uh, in his view. And he actually created an organization called Students for Fair Admissions, even though it's been a long time since he was a student at the University of Texas. He created a group called Students for Fair Admissions and, and, and uh, you know, recruited people to, to join it, just like he looked for um, Abigail Fisher, who, uh, who was denied admission to the University of Texas. So he recruited her, and that's really the most important thing. He's out there looking for test cases, so that's who Edward Blum is. He is pushing this, and and he is the the, the figure behind this this litigation. So Leah, um, Jess used the phrase "colorblind" a couple of times, and that seems to be a kind of philosophical underpinning um, of uh, the opponents of affirmative action that the Constitution is supposed to be colorblind. And people who follow the Supreme Court, I think, if there's one thing that they remember of the newest justice is that she took on that issue in, I think it was that civil rights, or I'm sorry, that voting rights case, Merrill versus Milligan, where Justice Jackson said she made the case of the 14th Amendment was intended to be race conscious, uh, actually, rather than race neutral. So how is that divide relevant in this in this case? I mean, it's interesting because Justice Jackson's argument was using the method of constitutional interpretation that we usually associate more with the Republican appointed justices, namely an attention to history and originalism, you know, a concern about what the original meaning of the Constitution was in that question you alluded to. Justice Jackson even invoked the phrase history and traditions was of course, was the phrase Justice Alito used in Dobbs, you know, to overrule Roe versus Wade. And her point was, as you said, that the drafters of the 14th Amendment, you know, the individuals who wrote the report introducing the amendment in Congress, used the amendment and wanted the amendment in order to eradicate discrimination against the new freedmen, discrimination against um, formerly enslaved individuals. And her point was, look, it was race conscious. And some additional evidence of that that people often point to are the laws that that Congress that adopted the Reconstruction Amendments wrote once the 14th Amendment was ratified, laws that provided, you know, funds to, you know, poor individuals who were black, laws that appropriated certain lands for schools, you know, for formerly enslaved individuals, laws that established an agency, the Freedmen's Bureau, that was designed to address discrimination against formerly enslaved individuals and black individuals. And the point is, it looks like, you know, the group that drafted and ratified the 14th Amendment did so in order to allow Congress and the states to rectify discrimination against racial minorities, in particular discrimination against Black individuals. So it's an unusual thing to see, you know, some of the justices appointed by Democratic presidents using an argument that sounds in the register of originalism and constitutional reasoning that we associate more with Republican appointed justices. But that was the tack she was taking. And the idea of colorblind constitutionalism that 
you'll hear from the opposing side, there hasn't really been an elaborate defense of how that principle is consistent with the original meaning of the 14th Amendment. Rather, the phrase seems to come from Justice Harlan's dissent in Plessy versus Ferguson when he gave a bunch of different reasons for why Louisiana's segregation of public train cars was unconstitutional. You know, he said our Constitution knows no caste or class. Another phrase was, you know, the Constitution is colorblind. And, you know, part of that phrase then gets associated with Brown versus Board of Education, which overruled Plessy. But the notion that the Constitution has been colorblind has never really received a full-throated originalist defense. You know, even in Justice Thomas's writings, which very clearly embrace a colorblind theory of the Constitution, he oftentimes focuses on what he views as the negative effects of affirmative action. So Justice Thomas has maintained that affirmative action actually leads people people to view underrepresented minorities as less qualified because they assume they are getting into schools, you know, with lesser or lower qualifications. And he's been quite public about how he feels, right? That was how his classmates and administrators and professors viewed him at Yale. Um, and, you know, some of his colleagues have written the same, but that's not really an argument about the original meaning or text of the Constitution. And so it will be interesting to see whether in this case we actually get a justice or justices to try to mount an originalist defense of the notion that our Constitution is colorblind. I want to uh, broaden the discussion a bit about the state of the court. I remember uh, before he retired, Justice Breyer had given a number of talks in which he was making the point that, you know, it may look like uh, we're at, you know, we're at each other's throats all the time, but actually we have a very collegial atmosphere in the court. We all get along. Uh, we all try to do the right thing and people ought to respect uh, the court for that. After the Dobbs decision, I believe he uh, had some doubts about his previous formulation. Um, Jess, you watch the court on a regular basis. What is your sense of the court's dynamics right now among the justices. And I should add, you know, obviously in the run-up to Dobbs, we had the extraordinary leak to Politico of the draft opinion of Justice Alito, which clearly was uh, sort of an inflammatory moment. And it, when you answer, please tell us where things stand on the supposed report about who the leaker was. Well, let me answer that first. Uh, we don't know. It is true that uh, there's supposed to be a report that's being compiled, at least for internal purposes, but we don't know when it's going to be compiled. We don't know what, if anything, it has found. The court has been very mum about this whole matter. And Didn't there... Gorsuch say that he expected a report to be released? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, I no, yeah, he, he was, this was at the uh, the Tenth Circuit Conference over the summer, and uh, that was, uh, and uh, I led with that and my story about it, that, that he said they were working on a report and they expected it, you know, he was hoping for it sooner rather than later, but he didn't say he expected it sooner rather than later. And, uh, you know, from what I've been hearing, you know, the, the preliminary results or anything, the, the, the other justices have not been updated on what is going on with this report. So we don't know. We don't know what the marshal has said about it. We know that the chief justice's closest aide, uh, Jeffrey Manier, the, the, his counselor, retired at the end of September. And Jeff Manier was heavily involved in that investigation. So the level of priority for that investigation and what they're willing to say publicly we still don't know. So that remains a big, a big question mark. Uh, I think they, they wish the whole thing would, would kind of go away. Uh, how it's going to affect the culture of the court, that I think is going to be an, an ongoing question. Uh, how free they are in sharing ideas and drafts with each other may change. We'll have to, you know, that so that we don't know. Um, the other point you said, the, which is, you know, related, the broader point is very interesting because, you know, over the summer, Justice Kagan, Justice Elena Kagan, at a number of appearances, really called out the conservative majority in a way that, that we have rarely seen. Uh, normally, there is this suspension of disbelief where we see the court as this wonderfully collegial body where they all uh, uh, respect each other and listen to each other's opinions carefully and, and so forth. And justices on, on all sides have, have tried to contribute to that public image. Gorsuch and Sotomayor both like to talk about uh, how well they all get along and what a collegial institution it is. You know, and Kagan basically said, if you have a court that is 
if you have a court that is doing things that, oh, just happen to be exactly the things that this court is doing, such as overturning precedent simply because the personnel have changed and switching your legal justifications for cases to get to consistently ideological outcomes and blah, blah, blah. If, if there were a court that were doing things like that, which she made clear this court was, that would call into question its legitimacy. And uh, a court that is so far out of line with what the public thinks also has questions of legitimacy. And she said that those sorts of things and in pretty strong terms. And she also even took aim at the sacrosanct concept of collegiality. I mean, she said, sure, we all have lunch together and we talk about, you know, grandchildren or movies or, or, or baseball scores. But, you know, collegiality means more than being able to talk about baseball. It means being able to really engage with uh, other members of the court to reach uh, to reach outcomes that are that find more common ground. That's the point of it. I mean, who cares who I go to go to the opera with if it doesn't have any impact on the work that we produce? And that I mean, I, you know, she so I did a piece on that. I reached out to Justice Alito and he told me anyone can criticize our decisions or our reasoning, but questioning our integrity crosses a line. And this suggested that that the kinds of things that we thought were going on at the court, the kind of disintegration of the of the norms within the institution, they were happening. They are happening. It is not a, a happy place. And there seem to be very few areas of dialogue between the conservative supermajority and the, uh, you know, liberal uh, redoubt uh, in, um, in the building. Leah, you are a Supreme Court clerk. Give us your sense. I mean, it's a little bit difficult to know just because I think the court does change a lot whenever it gets a new member. And, you know, since the time I was there, it has four new members. Um, so that that's a pretty different court than the one, you know, that I clerked at just 10 years ago. So and I think we have seen the dynamics change, you know, in part because of the evidence that Justice suggesting, you know, the justice's statements to the press about the goings on at the court, but also the decisions that they are issuing and the things they are writing in those opinions. So it's a little bit difficult to know from the outside exactly what is going on, but it doesn't seem like, you know, the sort of place where there is the same type of substantive engagement between all of the justices on the court and the different wings of the court in a way that used to be true 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Well, I should just to sort of wrap up, point out that not long ago, there was a lot of talk about court reforms, either expanding the size of the court, putting term limits uh, on it. Uh, uh, the pr President Biden appointed that commission that came up with a, a report that didn't really recommend anything specific, as I recall, just sort of said, here are the issues, as though we needed a commission to tell us what the issues were. But given the state of how we think the midterms are going to go with the Republicans making gains, it seems to me, highly unlikely that any of the proposals that were bandied about are going to get much traction. Do you both agree? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Right. There is no near term, near no near term prospect of court reform. Yeah, and it and it didn't even seem to be something that that was important to Biden. Even as his, you know, he has uh, broadly speaking the most at stake. It's his policies that are facing the greatest scrutiny up and down the the board uh, at at the Supreme Court. And he, you know, he is. He's an institutionalist, I guess, as well. He has been very reluctant to look to structural changes at the Supreme Court uh, as a way of getting, uh, you know, getting back uh, some kind of some kind of advantage or minimizing his his disadvantage there. So, yeah, I don't I don't see any prospect for change in the structure of the of the Supreme Court. Uh, I think it's 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 much more likely that we would see some kind of change in personnel before we saw any changes in the in the statutes or, or the constitutional provisions that that tell us what the Supreme Court is. And if the Republicans get back control of the Senate, there may not be any ability for Biden to get a Supreme Court uh, a nominee confirmed at all if a vacancy were to um, were to open up. Anyway, I want to thank you both for a uh, illuminating discussion. And um, as always, we will hope to have both of you back. Thank you.